You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. There were two notable things that happened in March of 2020. Uh, Everyone's world went sideways. Um, That's kind of the obvious one. But many of you lost countless hours of your life that you'll never get back because the Tiger King was released. Do you remember those days? If you haven't watched Tiger King, I cannot recommend it. Because I have sworn myself to not recommend TV shows during sermons. Uh, But it's a bizarre story about an eclectic man who is the king of tigers. But did you know that before there was a tiger king, there was tiger man? His name was Antoine Yates. He too had a love for exotic animals. And back in the early 2000s, he was living in the middle of New York City and he bought a baby tiger. Is that not the most precious, cuddly little animal you have ever seen? Who would not want to cuddle with that? Ming was his name and he did have a name. And Ming would not stay that tiny. He would grow up to be a 425-pound behemoth. And one day, Ming got irritated with Antoine and lunged at him and took part of his arm off. So Antoine goes to the hospital, and he tells the doctors that a pit bull bit him. And the doctors are like, nah, man, that ain't a pit bull. And so they called the authorities, who then snuck a small camera into the apartment to find that, yes, there was indeed a fully grown tiger pacing back and forth in the kitchen. Looked like that. This picture does not appear very harmful. It actually appears very, very manageable. And I think this is the picture of how the majority of us view sin. It's very manageable. We are working our way through Peter's letter to the churches throughout the Roman and Diaspora. And he just finished giving this great encouragement to them of the victory of God over the powers and principalities that haunt the earth. There are these pockets of the kingdom of God that are breaking forth, but it can feel like it's not really working because there is opposition and there's pushback and there's discouragement and there's, quite frankly, just uncertainty. Because everything about following Jesus in a world that is not following him feels a bit strange. And of course it would, because everything the kingdom is about is against what the culture is about, what the scriptures call Babylon is about. All the way down to the apex of the kingdom breaking in, which is death. The mechanism that God uses to upend the powers and principalities of the earth and bring about the renewal of the world is suffering death. And because of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we get to take on His lifestyle. And this might go without saying, but no one would succumb to sin if it appeared terrible. No sane person is taking a full-grown tiger from the wild and putting it in their home, but they can tame a baby one for a time. Most affairs are emotional before they are physical. 
Most addictions stem from a need to just escape for a few hours before they are deadly, and most domestic violence situations are a denial of patience before they are abusive. And most overt racism is birthed from the subtle ways people grow up in very monolithic cultures. Sin is a whole lot less like jumping off the Grand Canyon and a whole lot more like cuddling a baby tiger. Maybe the greatest thing I have learned the last three years regarding fighting my own sin is that for three decades I have been asking the wrong question. How do I stop doing this? Why can't I stop doing that? Why do I keep failing here? Those were the questions that dominated every moment of giving in to whatever temptation was confronting me. But recently, I have started to ask myself a different question. Who am I, really? Because sin is not about my actions as much as it's about my identity. Who am I? Who are we? The fundamental reality that encompasses the entire thread of Paul's letters addressed this heartache of a question. How do you wage war against sin? How do you fight temptation? How do you arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Jesus? We're all tempted, by the way. And being tempted is not a sin. Jesus was tempted in every way and was without sin. You will be tempted by a thousand things this week. The issue is not to be tempted. The question is, how do you engage when tempted? Being tempted to unrighteous anger, being tempted toward lust, being tempted toward greed is not really a battle for your money. It's not really a fight for your libido. It's not really a war toward your need to vent. It's not even really a battle over your desires. It's ultimately a battle over your identity. Who are you? The entire chapter of Ephesians 2 does the best job of summing this up. Who we were and who we are. We were alienated from the people of God, hopeless, dead, carrying out the desires and passions of our bodies, and literally following Satan. This is who we were, full of shame, racked with guilt, a nobody. We were unlovable. The narratives that were driving our life were fueled by generations of dysfunction, by our own perfectionist attitude, by our addiction to work or our perception of others or endless self-pity or just the need to be right. And when your life rubs up against sin and when your life is confronted by suffering, it is so easy to hear the lie, who you were is who you are. But then Paul reminds them and he reminds us, who are we? We are alive, raised up with Jesus, seated beside Jesus, saved created for literally good works, near to God, reconciled across earthly dividing lines like race and class, access to the Father, citizens of the kingdom, members of the house of God, and home to the Spirit of God. Here is the truth. You sin, but if you are in Christ, your fundamental identity is not you are a sinner. In fact, throughout Paul's letters, he virtually never uses the noun sinner to describe who the people of God are, but he uses the noun saint over 40 times. Satan has a plan. He wants to drag you off and devour you. He wants to take you back to who you were. Satan wants to plant the seeds of sin in you that birth destruction. God also has a plan. He has a future for you. He wants to take you into who you are becoming by the power of the Spirit. God wants to sow His words and Spirit into you so a vision is formed in you and you move into eternity. 
Satan places seeds of temptation to obliterate your life, and God places seeds of promise that redirect your entire life. Satan's plan, pull you back into your past, lie to you, so you justify it and destroy the beautiful thing God is doing in you. And God's plan, put a promise in you that increases your capacity to know Him and to follow Him so that you might see the purposes and plan of God played out in your life and the kingdom of God would break forth from the promises that were sown. One is a temptation to steal you back into the story of Genesis 3. The other is a promise that will lead you into the future of Revelation 22. Satan wants to lie to you by telling you that who you were is still who you are. And God has promised you that who you are is not, in fact, who you were. What does the Father speak over the Son? Two different times recorded in the Gospels, both at His baptism and at the transfiguration on the mountain. One at the outset of His ministry and the other along the journey of His ministry. You are my beloved Son. With whom I am well pleased. My, the Son is the Father's. There is no burden the Father is bearing here. There is only delight. He is mine. My beloved, this is the heart of the Father. Love, affection, an eternal bond that is never severed. At the core, this is who God is. Love and loved. My beloved Son. Who the Father is finds residence in the Son by the nature of the relationship of the Trinity. The imprint of the Father is on the Son. The Son is the radiance, the expression of the glory of God and the exact, not the semi, the exact imprint of His nature. With whom I am well pleased. The Father did not begrudgingly love the Son. He did not do so out of obligation. And so many of us can conceptualize the love of God. Few of us can conceptualize the enjoyment of God toward us. God doesn't merely love you. He actually likes you. And saying that is deeply uncomfortable. But in our union with Jesus, this is what we hear. You are my beloved with whom I am well pleased. The vision of God's promise to us that He has placed His Spirit in us, that we are a son and daughter, that we are ambassadors representing His Lordship on earth, that we are stewards of the mysteries of God through the power of the Spirit in the life of the church. That vision is how you withstand the temptations of the world's attachments. And in the moments of temptation, it is so easy to go back to all the places. This is a story of my life. This is what I was. And by the way, this is who I still am. And the Spirit says no. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our own spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. See, this is what Peter is getting at when he says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That is a vision for your life. Part of how we get set free from the human attachments, the idols in our soul, the things we are married to that we find difficult to shake, is to ask ourselves, what story am I living from? What is the narrative of our life? 
Bobette Buster has a line that I've been using for some years now, and it goes like this. Narrative is our culture's currency, and he who tells the best story wins. And you know this because we live in an age of story wars. Brands and companies are competing to sell you a product, but they do so by drawing you into a story. And let me give you two examples. Tom's. Remember Tom's? I don't really know where they went. But they entered into a competitive space of footwear, put out probably a subpar product against its competitors, and they make millions of dollars for an extremely long time. Why? You weren't buying a crappy shoe. You were contributing to good in the world. You were caring for needs around the world. The product was not the draw. The story of social good and social enterprise and you contributing to that good was the draw. Peloton, an exercise company at its most basic level, but it's just an exercise bike and a treadmill that has some cool virtual reality stuff, right? No. Any Peloton user will tell you it is the story of community. They have capitalized on the loneliness pandemic and they have leveraged social media in such a way that they are not pitching you a pitch to get in better shape. They are introducing you to a world of relationships in a culture of isolation. They're selling a story. Marketers capitalize on what traditions and people have done since the dawn of time. They've just been telling stories. What is the story of your life? What is the story that you tell yourself? What is the story of your neighbor's life? Do they know what story they are living out of? The reason that you do not join in on the current of our world's loves is that you are living out of a different story. The reason you don't overindulge in alcohol, the reason you choose chastity over porn, the reason you fight against power plays at work, the reason you choose gentleness toward your spouse and your children is because you are living out of a different story. Who are we? And then Peter says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is our great tension. Living in light of the gospel of God, we feel growing isolation. By the nature of our allegiance, we don't give in to compromise, but neither do we stand on the street corners with cardboard signs telling people where they are going when they die. There is a third way to love Jesus and his kingdom lifestyle and to love our neighbor and seek the welfare of the city. This might incur blessing and it might incur suffering. It is the literal theme of exile. In 587 BC, Jerusalem is attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city is burned and plundered. And thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. And they became what is known as exiles. They are a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Some revolted and wanted to overthrow the empire. Some withdrew, and some just merely compromised to the way of the empire. And Jeremiah's prophetic voice offers a different way to the people of God. Do not make war and do not give in. 
Rather, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, pray for and seek the betterment of the city. It is neither compromise nor revolt. And so the question remains, what does that look like? There's actually a book in the Bible that literally gives us the the playbook for what this looks like, and it's called Daniel. Daniel is one of the Israelites taken into Babylon in exile. He had a royal heritage and an education. And he was hired on to work for the high court. And it's tempting to think that the way of compromise or the way of revolt are the only two options for Daniel. He gives in to the powers that be and makes a name for himself to become the the Nebuchadnezzar 2.0 of Babylon. Or perhaps he would make it an inside job. It's easier to take down the empire when you're befriending it. But neither one is a satisfactory option. During Daniel's life, the people of God would take on Babylonian names. They would adopt their fashion choices. So in many ways, they were seeking the welfare of the city. But the life of Daniel in chapters 1 through 6 is really narrated around the milestones where Daniel or other Israelites who are seeking the welfare of the city would draw lines where their allegiance to Yahweh was put in question and they were asked to compromise. So they resisted the influence of Babylon. There is a a critique of Babylon, a refusal to bow to the idols that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, namely himself, refusing to bow to him as king. But they don't do it in a revolting way. They choose the way of non-violent suffering, literally giving up their lives for the sake of Yahweh. The story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is really a story about non-violent resistance. And the story about Daniel being thrown in the lion's den comes out because literally Daniel, if you read the story, it's bizarre because he could have just prayed to himself every day. But the way the story is unfolded is he literally goes to his window, opens it every day to pray toward the city, looking toward the city as a show of resistance, saying, you are not my Non-violent resistance. And Yahweh vindicated Daniel and spared the lives of his friends. And ultimately Daniel would pray that the Lord would send a king to bring down Babylon. But then he experienced a dream where he sees the entire empire of Babylon crumbling. But another empire rises. And then another empire rises. And then another empire rises. Israel did go back to the promised land, but they are still ruled by Babylon's successors. They might have their land back, but they are still living in exile. Hence Jesus, who is the ultimate pairing of modeling loyalty and subversion. Give to Caesars what is Caesars, he says. Don't be a revolting citizen. Read the Gospels. There are so many times where his disciples are ready to lead the revolt. When they talk about zealots, In the Gospels, they were people who were leading a revolt against the Roman Empire. And Jesus says there are things that belong to the government. And then he says, and give to God what is God's. Then there are things that don't belong to the government. Love your enemies, he says. And then he goes on to critique the idolatry of power in Rome and it gets him killed. Rome was just Babylon 2.0. Loyalty and subversion. Babylon in the Bible is, has become a symbol for any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinition of good and evil.
And we all live and work in Babylon. The first words of this letter that gets circulated is to those who are elect exiles. And this is not new to Israel. The entire theme of the scripture since the garden is the theme of exile. We are all longing to be home. So how do we live in the tension of loyalty and subversion, of committing our allegiance to Jesus as Lord and living as citizens in our country, in our city? Maybe a helpful metaphor is from the book Artists, Citizens, and Philosophers, Seeking the Peace of the City. So I'm going to end with this. Let's take artists first. Artists do two things. The most popular thing artists do is critique the bad in society, but they also call out the good And we need to be artists. And when I say that, I know art is a broad term. I don't just mean painting or music or cinematography. In a way, all work is artistic. Painting, yes. And raising children. And teaching second grade and running a business and being in medicine. It's all creative. And good artists help people to imagine a better future. They catalyze the mind's eye to a new reality. They help people see not only what is but also what could be, and to dream of and imagine a better world. They lead with beauty. And what draws all of us in to a great photograph or a mesmerizing film or social enterprise, the story of self-sacrifice or the depths of the universe, what draws us in is beauty. Second is citizens. We have dual citizenship. We need to be good citizens of Knoxville, Tennessee and of the kingdom of God. We need to tie our peace, personally and communally, our flourishing to Knoxville's peace. To pray for, in the language of Jeremiah, the peace of our city. And not only to pray for it, but to actually work for it. To sweat for our city. And the word peace in Hebrew is shalom. And it means way more than our sort of like shallow definition of feeling good. Uh, It means harmony, it means delight, it means flourishing as in life as God intended it. So we are to pray and to work for a vision of Knoxville that is as God intended it, that is more in line with God's vision of human flourishing. This city should be a better place because you live in it. Being a good citizen actually is critical to our witness. We all know bad supervisors. We all know poorly run businesses. We all know they don't give great credence to the way of Jesus. They merely reaffirm the stereotype of Christians. Let's be good citizens. Finally, there's philosophers. Philo in Greek means love. So philosopher just means lover of wisdom. Potentially more than artists, potentially more than Citizens, we need philosophers because our culture is desperately lacking wisdom. We have so many who are educated, smart, successful in the public sphere, but in the private sphere, they are a wreck. They don't know how to parent a three-year-old. They don't know how to stay in a marriage. They don't know how to be in community. They don't know how to manage money or sex drive or any of that. We desperately need wisdom. We need philosophers in business, those of you that work in the marketplace to bring the wisdom of God to bear on a world driven by capitalism and consumerism. And we need philosophers to work inside of capitalism and consumerism to chart a path forward, not just to make more money, but to make a better world. We need philosophers in technology, thinking through not just what technology can do for us, but what technology is doing to us. We need philosophers in parenting. 
Some of us grew up in broken homes and the ripple effect of generational sin is just catastrophic for so many children. And if you don't believe me, just start hanging out with more children. We need men and women who discern how to parent well, how to coax a child into maturity, how to help and not hurt a child, a little boy or a little girl to thrive in God's world. When I think of philosophers in this church, I think of all the stay-at-home moms in the room who have given up careers and jobs to take on the task of, of another full-time job, which is raising boys and girls into men and women. Artists, citizens, philosophers. We want to actually be people who make a difference. The framework of those three will help us create beauty, will help us advocate for the social good, and will help us chart a path forward with wisdom all undergirded by an allegiance to Jesus that says He actually has painted the good life for us even if suffering is involved. Part of what it means to journey with the Lord is to reestablish yourself as one whose identity is rooted securely in being a child of God, a saint, part of the royal priesthood. And part of what it means to journey with Jesus is to find your place in His kingdom and reimagine your contributions to His world as an exile. And we're going to really hit home on this in the fall, but for now, just rest in this. We are the living embodiment of a better story. And we get the privilege of being loyal to Jesus and subversively bringing the kingdom of God because we have been given the Spirit that both fills us with joy and convictions. To co-labor with God because we do believe there is a king unlike any the world has ever known. That is our mission and that is our vision. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are good and kind and loving. Would you help us? We fail at this quite frequently, and yet we strive with effort, not earning, but effort. To live in this world and to love you in this world and to love one another in this world and out of that love to bring about your kingdom. A different kind of kingdom. Not an empire that is about control, but a kingdom that is about surrender. Would you cement our convictions? Disrupt us where we are comfortable. And launch us out. Thank you for going ahead of us. And we trust you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.